Before we get started in uh, Romans 15 itself, just a little bit of recap. Just ask you to think four years back. Let me uh, help us even think a week back or, or a few as we just uh, recap where we've been since chapter 12. Remember Paul's encouraged us, urged us not to conform to the ways of the world but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is our spiritual or reasonable act of worship, all of it by the mercies of God in response to the grace of God in his son Jesus Christ. He's then told us if we've got gifts, which we all have, to use in the body, then use them. Let's use them, he says. Whatever they are, use them in accordance with the faith you've been given. Love one another. Bless those who persecute you. This is really faith working through love, isn't it? The action of the gospel in our lives towards one another. Submit to governing authorities. They've been instituted by God. Submit to them. You're actually submitting to God. They are servants of God. And we've seen how the law of God informs the way we are to love today. And love is the fulfilling of the law. Then last week we had the matters of the conscience in chapter 14. The weak and the strong in faith, as Paul described them. They're not to pass judgment on one another. Whichever you think you are, don't pass judgment on one another, but welcome one another. And in the midst of the matters of the conscience, whatever you decide, be fully convinced in your own minds how you are going to act. But then in your conviction, act according to your brothers and sisters' faith, not your own, and their freedom, for their sake, not for your own. Uh, So in the areas where the freedom of Christ permits us, um, we are free, but don't use that freedom to destroy the work of God. Instead, be sure not to let your freedom cause your brother or sister to stumble. For the kingdom of God, we heard, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the spirit. We're to follow the example of Christ himself, willing to give up or restrict our freedom for the sake of others in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning, chapter 15, follows straight on. We could have kept going for at least for a few verses last week um, through to chapter uh, verse 6 or 7, but we just kept it with the, the chapter delineations. Um, but we're going to hear more of the example of Christ in these matters of the conscience as Paul uh, ties up what we were looking at uh, last week in chapter 14. So let me read... Uh, first seven verses of chapter 15. We who are strong, Paul's including himself and a bunch of others there, we who are strong in faith, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. When I was a teacher, uh, I had the opportunity once, I needed some male teachers to go on an outdoor ed expedition. Uh, We went up to the Grampians, a bunch of Year 11s, um, 
guys and girls, and we were up there for a week um, wandering through, camping, hiking all the way through, doing some orienteering and map work where the students were. And uh, about day three or four of a five-day hike, um, a couple of people were getting pretty weary. Uh, one girl had some really bad blisters and was really battling and um, basically couldn't go on. But teacher sort of left, OK, what are you going to do, guys? Tries to get it, work it out with the students. You're here all together. How are we going to work this out? And there's a couple of big burly guys. One of them I remember, his name was Chris. He was a basketballer. He was six foot three or four, big, strong guy. He said, that's all right. We'll take her pack and she can just walk. And uh, they divvied up a few things from the pack, but he had his own pack on, each of us carrying 15 to 20 kilos. And then he put her pack on the front. They did take a few things out, but he was basically carrying two packs. And we did the next whole day hike like that so that she could keep going at the same pace. We who are stronger have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We might have greater freedom in Christ, but we've also got a greater responsibility in the body to bear with one another, to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. I wonder if we were asked to describe a person who is strong in faith, I wonder what sort of things we would describe. What character traits would come to mind? Someone who's strong in faith. Just think about that for a moment. What practices or disciplines would you expect to find in someone who's strong in faith? Probably read their Bible, they pray a lot, trust God in the ups and downs of life and all those things. But I wonder if any of us would actually come up with the strong in faith bears with their weaker brother and sister don't think it would be one of the first things that come to our mind. The strong in faith are patient with others. The strong in faith are kind and compassionate. They bear with others. And I think especially in our culture today, which is growing more and more individualistic, I think it always has been ever since the fall, but there's certain things that are just causing us to be, if you've heard of the unholy trinity, me, myself and I, it's been written about. Yeah, we can laugh, but it's a sad truth. Very self-centred culture. We don't automatically consider a person's strong faith to have much to do with other people. It's all about what they're doing between them and God. Whereas here, Paul is saying the strong in faith, we actually have an obligation and we will bear with the weaknesses and failings of others, with their baggage, so to speak. Not to look down on them. So it's not baggage in that sense. It's to welcome them, to include them, to embrace them, to encourage them either. Let us, um, each of us, please his neighbour for his good to build him up. That's the responsibility of the strong. The strong in faith is very outward in its faith working through love, isn't it? They don't live to please themselves. They live to please others in their gospel freedom. They're strong in faith. And they strive to build others up, not parade their own freedom or strength of faith, but to build up and encourage others in their faith. What's the grounds for Paul's instruction? Well, he grounds it in Christ. 4 verse 3, Christ did not please himself, that as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting there from Psalm 69. 
psalm that talks about um, Christ. It's a messianic psalm. My throat is parched, the thirst of Christ on the cross. But he reads there, let me read it from verse 7. It is for your sake that I've borne reproach, that dishonour has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is Christ bearing the sins of others. Christ bearing with our weaknesses and failings. For our sake he's borne all of that. And Paul's telling us here, in light of that and as with Christ as our example as well as our foundation, that's exactly what we're to do with others. We who are strong in faith have that obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Jesus didn't try to duck out of the way of anything he endured, did he? He didn't try to avoid it. He wasn't like one of the three stooges, you know, when the big ladder's going around or the, and uh, you know, one of them ducks and it cops the other one in the head or the slap and they duck. Jesus never did that. He took it. He bore it all. He took the blow for us. Didn't protect himself, didn't try to protect his own rights or his freedom. Instead, he used all of that in love for our sake. Not to please himself, but to save us. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. Paul knows the reality of the human heart. And so he then prays for us that we'd have the encouragement and endurance to do this very thing. It's a very short but and maybe little known prayer of Paul's here at the beginning of Romans 15, verse 4. Quite a lovely prayer, really. Having just told us how the Old Testament scriptures are written here for our instruction and our endurance and encouragement and hope, he prays accordingly, both here and down in verse 13. May the God of endurance and encouragement, where does any endurance and encouragement come from? From the God of endurance and encouragement. May he grant you to live in such harmony with one another in this bearing with the weaknesses and failings of the weak. In harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, to what end? To what purpose? Just so you can all have a nice happy church time together? That's part of it. No, verse 6, more than that, together that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that our harmony together as brothers and sisters glorifies God in united worship. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. You who are strong in faith, where did you get your strength from? Where did you get your freedom from? Where did you get your understanding of the gospel and the freedom you have in Christ from? Only from the welcoming arms of the Father himself. It's not something you've worked out for yourself. So do the same to others because someone's done that for you, for you to be able to grow strong. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. All of this is not just for our peace and harmony and unity. It's all for the glory of God, which is why we sang the two hymns we've just sung. And then in verse 13, just skipping down to the prayer there, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I think these prayers remind us that in matters of the conscience, 
how we are to conduct ourselves around one another and why um, when they require endurance and encouragement, God actually, Paul here is saying we need endurance, we need encouragement in these things and we need hope, we need something to keep us moving forward together in them because we would be lost without endurance from God. We'd be weary. We'd be downhearted without the encouragement that comes from God. And we'd be in despair without the hope that the God of hope might fill us with. I think the very fact that Paul prays these things tells us that these things require endurance, encouragement and hope, meaning they're not easy to do. They're not natural in our sinful nature, in our fleshly ways. But for the people of God, this is the way to live. And this is what we've been enabled as well as encouraged to live in by the Spirit. This is the way of the children of God, like father, like son. It's how God welcomes us. We welcome one another in this way. And so Paul prays that God would grant to the believers the very things we need, harmony, unity, joy and peace. Nothing wrong with praying for joy. Paul prays for it a number of times. We just expect it to sort of fall in our laps when we have a good time and all the troubles cease. Like Paul actually prays in a number of places to pray for, for joy in the midst of endurance. And those little glimmers of joy when you're going through a hard time, they're like a breath of fresh air. We really need them. They help us in the matters of endurance. These are no small prayers and it's, they're good prayers for us to pray. Find Paul's prayers throughout the New Testament and pray them yourself for others, for your own church. But the goal of Paul's prayer, again, ultimately is not just for us, that's there for our harmony, our communion together, but ultimately that we might glorify God with one voice. Even the purpose of the unity we share as brothers and sisters in Christ is so that we would worship the Lord, glorify him with one voice. So yes, we're free in Christ. We've been given the full rights of sons, no longer under the law, no longer but under grace instead. But all of that is with a view not to live for ourselves, but to live for Christ and to glorify God, his Father, as we love one another and bear with one another. Paul sums it up neatly in verse 7 for us, closing off this section really. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Very similar to what he says uh, as he starts this section in chapter 14, isn't it? Welcome one another. Welcome the one who is weak in faith. So you can sort of see how he's closing off this section, even though what's to come is still connected to it. And then he begins to wrap up this very long letter. We're getting near the end. Next week, chapter 16. This is the penultimate chapter. And he brings it all to conclusion with another bookend. We've just seen two shorter shorter bookends, the welcome one another in chapter 14 and 15. But as we read verses 8 and 9, think back to chapter 1, verses 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the gospel of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. This is what he says near the end, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the circumcised, the Jews, 
show God's truthfulness to them, to confirm the promises to them, to the patriarchs through them, fulfilled in them, but in order that the Gentiles would glorify God. Jews first, then the Gentiles, not ashamed of the gospel. And then demonstrating Paul's own love and knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, he leans upon them, proving how the gospel was always meant, not just for God's people, chosen people, the Jews, but for all the nations, with this string of Old Testament references from Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117 and Isaiah 11. Really highlighting what he's just said earlier, whatever is written in the former days, verse 4, was written for our instruction, that we would have this endurance and encouragement. So he quotes from the Old Testament, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. They were always included in God's purposes. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And I said they, we were always included. We're part of the Gentiles. Remember that, unless you've got Jewish heritage. And again, verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all you nations, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope, or the nations hope. And Paul, wonderfully, at the beginning of Romans, doesn't he said how great it is. He hasn't been there yet. He wants this mutual encouragement. But he says, look, the Gospels reached even to Rome, the centre of the world at the time, and spreading everywhere and bearing fruit. And as I said, this is a bit like a bookend. He started Romans with the, the Gospel, not being ashamed, going to Jew first, then Gentile. And then here, bookends or not, Paul hasn't simply shifted gears and changed topics. This is linked to what he's just been saying about welcoming uh, the one who is weak in faith and the obligation we have who are strong towards one another. Because the very thing God expects of us on the micro level in our relationships with one another is exactly what God has done with the nations, hasn't he? He's welcomed the nations into his family, into his covenant people. And he's still doing that. How does he do it? Well, he does it when we welcome one another, the weak and the strong, together, bearing with one another. That's actually God at work bringing the nations into his church, through us. That's one of the reasons why we're to do it. It's how God works. He's working through us. We're participating in the very ministry of God's sovereign purposes and plan of redemption. All with the same goal, that together Jew and Gentile, slave and free, weak and strong, would give unified glory to God. Have you ever been to a a church where there's, um, and you you may have a number of different nationalities in your own church, but if you've ever been to a church where there is significantly multinational, it's quite an amazing thing to be worshipping Christ and the Father together. It's, it's almost otherworldly. And I think that's rightly so because it's new heavens and new earth actual experience that we're enjoying there. That's what it's going to be. Every nation, tribe and tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus welcomed sinners and tax collectors, didn't he? He welcomed even a Pharisee or two. Nicodemus, still a bit weak and wobbly, thought thought he knew his Old Testament but didn't and Jesus says you don't know these things and you're a teacher of the law and yet he comes to wonderful faith in Christ. God welcomes the weak, the strong, he welcomes sinners, he doesn't exclude anyone 
on the basis of their weakness or strength or nationality. He welcomes them all. Who are we to pass judgment? My father-in-law is reading a book at the moment. I'm a journalist who has done a whole lot of work in uh, Pentecostal churches and uh, just trying to work out the history and and the dynamics of it all. I don't think it's just Pentecostal churches, but one thing she noticed as someone who's in there but not part of it is the competition between pastors and churches in the mega church scene. And I don't think it's just the mega church scene. This is not competition. Welcome one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, glorifying God with a unified voice, not just those who gather in one place on a Sunday morning, but the whole global church. We found the one place there's meant to be competition, haven't we? Can you remember a couple of weeks ago? We're to outdo one another in showing honour, in serving one another. Not being competitive in our church life, in our faith. It's good when brothers dwell in unity. You know the psalm? It's like oil running down Aaron's beard. It's really not good when we don't. Really not good. And so as Christ has welcomed us, we weren't strong when he welcomed us. We weren't worthy. We were weak, ungodly sinners. Heard that back in Romans 5, haven't we? As Christ has welcomed us, welcome one another. And we'll be bearing witness to Christ himself as we do that and the gospel at work in our lives. All with a view to giving glory to God. And therefore, I wonder if I put it to you this morning that one way we're to consider any matter of the conscience is not so much what seems right to you who are strong in faith or even what seems right to the weaker brother or sister as much as that is what Paul's just been teaching us, that's there. And we need to go on teaching and encouraging one another in the freedom that we have in Christ. But perhaps a good question to ask is in this situation, if it's a matter of the conscience where it's not black and white, right or wrong, what action or inaction manifests and maintains best the unity of the fellowship? Not forsaking truth. It's not unity at the cost of everything else. That's not wise. Okay, The peace we read of in James is first of all pure. There's a purity, there's a strength, there's a solidarity in the truth of Christ and the gospel. But what what is going to maintain best that unity in Christ Jesus? doesn't mean we don't have a different opinion. But if the goal here is that we welcome one another and with one voice glorify God, then it takes a lot of strength and maturity and wisdom in the brothers and sisters of Christ to work out what's the best way to maintain that and still move forward with the truth of Christ in matters of the conscience. And we who are strong, we have an obligation to bear with the weak. We need all the endurance and encouragement and hope and peace and joy that Paul prays for and the Father gives us, don't we, in those things. Verse 14 onwards, Paul speaks about his own ministry and he expresses his confidence in the Roman believers. Having just taught them all these things, um, Paul's confidence doesn't mean he's never going to say anything or teach anything. 
In fact, he's quite happy to remind people he's a good teacher. He knows repetition's needed if we're going to know the truth and go on living in it. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. That'd make you feel pretty good, wouldn't it, if you got that sort of resume from Paul? Not bad at all. I wouldn't mind that on my CV and signed by the Apostle Paul if I was going for a job. And yet it hasn't stopped Paul writing this very long letter to them, has it? You would think if he was that confident, he might have been able to write a little less. But no, Paul's whole life and ministry is bent towards serving, being a minister of the gospel and encouraging and equipping others in the truth of Christ. So he doesn't leave anything unsaid in his calling, in his proclamation of that gospel. As I said, he's a natural teacher. There's boldness, there's repetition, there's reminders all the way along so that his readers would be growing and learning the truth of Christ and in God's wonderful sovereign plan so that we too might benefit from that. But he takes no credit or pride for what he's doing, for who he is, for the strength of faith that he has. The only boast he has is everything which Christ has accomplished in him. On some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, I have, no, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, only in Christ. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Nothing of me, he says, this is Christ at work in me. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way to Elycrium, I didn't say that right, Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and thus I make it my ambition. It's okay to have an ambition, you know that? Paul does. Not a selfish one though. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation but as it is written those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. That's been Paul's principle, his ambition from the outset since his own conversion to preach Christ, absolutely, Christ and him crucified wherever he can except not where Christ has already been proclaimed. Paul wasn't always the first to get there. wasn't in Rome. He wrote to the Colossians too, he's never been there. He didn't found that church, establish that church. And that in fact is what has stopped Paul going to Rome up until now because the gospel's already got there. And therefore he says, right, that's not my priority now. I need to go where the gospel hasn't been yet. He wouldn't even give himself the pleasure of this mutual encouragement and going to the centre of the world and take a cruise to Rome because there are other places that hadn't heard the gospel. And he says himself, this is what's hindered his coming. That's what's prevented him coming. Verse 22, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. What reason? Because he doesn't want to build on anyone else's foundation. He goes where the gospel hasn't been heard or proclaimed. But now, verse 23, 
And for once, this is not one of Paul's big gospel, but now, you who are once dead are now alive. No, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, the gospel's gone everywhere. Praise the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Whether they've all received it, they've all heard the gospel in the areas that he's been travelling. Now I can come. And since I've longed many years to come to you, I hope to see you. (laughs) Ah, in passing. (laughs) He really wants to go to Rome. He wants to meet these people and go there. But why? Because what he really wants to do is go to Spain. Why? Preach the gospel. Tells you something about Paul's motivation, doesn't it? Everything he does is for the virgin territory of the nations to hear the gospel of Christ. Even the trip to Rome is only uh, via Rome so I can get to Spain. And then we read a little bit more of his travelling plans and we learn something here of the giving and receiving in the church. He's not going to get there yet because at present, sorry, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, verse 24, and to be helped on my journey there by you. This mutual encouragement and it's a long trip so they might be able to help him with provisions. At present, however, not just yet. Why? Because I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. Remember on this missionary journey, Paul's actually been collecting from the different churches because there's a famine in Jerusalem and he's been collecting this, these uh, collections from the various churches. For they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. To them. For if the Gentiles, if the nations have come to share in their, in the J- Jerusalem spiritual blessings of, of, um, of Israel, they ought to, the Gentiles also ought to be of service to them, to Israel, in material blessings. Giving and receiving in the gospel. They've heard the gospel. They've received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, well, guess what? There's an obligation there. You've been given all these spiritual blessings. If you're able to, if you have the means, then if you can give, offer material provisions and blessings to your brothers and sisters in Christ in need, then do so. The giving and receiving in gospel life together. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some, um, verse 26 that is, make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. He's used Macedonia in another letter as a sort of example to follow. They're pleased to do it. When, therefore, going down to verse 28, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I, then I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. There's his confidence, not just in Rome, but in Christ, in his travels. Which is amazing, really, given the number of shipwrecks and storms and persecutions. And at one point he says, everywhere I go around the corner, I know there's persecution and opposition coming. But here he is, I'm going to come with all the fullness of Christ and all the rich blessings of Christ in himself, but for them. Again, just shows the heart of Paul in everything he does. Heart for unbelievers, great heart for the church, heart for the gospel, for Christ himself. And to finish his letter, notwithstanding what we'll read next week in chapter 16, uh, with all these greetings and a great doxology to boot, Paul asks the church in Rome to pray for him. And not only to pray for him, but to strive together in prayer with him. That he would be delivered for protection, 
He asks for protection from unbelievers in Judea. He knows there's opposition. And that his service, in particular the collection that he's taken to Jerusalem, as well as his gospel ministry to the Gentiles, would be accepted there by the believers at the so-called head office of the early church in Jerusalem. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Intercede for me. We need to pray for one another, don't we? For everyone, not just those in ministry, vocational ministry, because we're all called to ministry. Interceding for one another. On my behalf, strive in prayer with me. What for? That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. There's going to be Jews there that haven't accepted the Christian faith, haven't accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord, as the Christ. A bit like Paul himself was, really, isn't it? That would be his own fellow peers from before his conversion. That he might be delivered from them. And that my service for Jerusalem, the collection, may be acceptable to the saints. So that by God's will, he knows none of it will happen without God's will. I will come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. He wants to get to Jerusalem and for all that to go well so that then he can make his way to Spain via Rome. Which he never does. Gets to Rome, but in chains. May the God of peace, he says, be with you all. Yes, Paul was eager to get to Rome, but primarily had to get to Jerusalem first, drop off the collection share with the brothers and sisters there in the church and then he wanted to go to Spain to preach the gospel. Paul really was someone who practised what he preached at every point, wasn't he? He modelled the way of life that he's instructing us all to live in, that we are called to live. Particularly here in these last couple of chapters, he didn't live for himself, always living for others, wanting to bless them in Christ with the gospel. He didn't look for comfort or pleasure for himself. At times he didn't claim his rights, he instead gave them up. He deserved to be paid for his work, his labour in the word. But at times he said, no, I'm not going to do that. He gave up his rights for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. Always on the lookout for others, especially for opportunities to preach the gospel so that more and more might come to know, receive and know the grace of God and give glory to God. And whilst each of us may not be called to that same kind of ministry, we're not apostles in the sense that Paul was with a capital A, we've all been sent out into the world, we've all been called by God to give reason for the hope that we have in Christ. And we've been taught and told here to live the same way Paul has lived, not to please ourselves but to please others to welcome one another, to live for the sake of others, not for our own pleasure, but for theirs and for Christ's glory, so that together, more and more, with more and more brothers and sisters in Christ, we might live together in harmony and glorify God together. Here on earth, as I said before with worship, it's a bit like it's a part of God's kingdom being here on earth as it is in heaven when all of this is taking place together, isn't it?
brothers and sisters of the nations coming together and glorifying God. Isn't that the picture we read in Revelation? The new heavens and the new earth. We get a glimpse of that. God gives us a taste of that today as we share together in worship and life, not just Sunday morning singing worship, but our whole body worship, our living bodies as spiritual sacrifices, living sacrifices to God together. It's a great goal, great motivation, isn't it? And Christ has given us all we need by the Spirit to live in that. We'll look at chapter 16 next week, as well as uh, which as well as some lengthy greetings, it's one of his longest sort of section of greetings in the New Testament, um, which I think indicates just how well-travelled Paul was and how well-known he was, but also how well-travelled some of the people he knew were. He hadn't been to Rome, yet there's people there he knows. So he's met them somewhere and now and there he wants to go meet them, passes on greetings and vice versa. And um, for now, let me conclude just with a very short prayer and benediction that finishes off chapter 15. May the God of peace, you've had the God of encouragement, God of endurance, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen.